First Peter chapter 1. And I want to read for us in just a few moments, verses 3 through 9. That's where we'll be looking. According to the CDC, in 2012, 38,000 people plus in the United States succeeded in committing suicide. Another 300, uh, no, I'm sorry, another three-quarter million people, three-quarter million people in 2012 were treated for self inflicted injuries but survived. Among recent suicides was a girl named Gia Alamond. You may have heard of her. She was a model, a reality TV star. She was dating an NBA basketball player. She had everything that people want. Money, fame, the admiration of others. It wasn't enough to keep her alive. She hanged herself. You think that people with money and fame, people who have achieved their dreams, would want to live? In 2009, Kenny McKinley realized his lifelong goal of playing in the NFL. He was drafted by the Denver Broncos. Team is playing in the Super Bowl tonight. He played in eight games. A year later, he shot himself. In 1999, Dana Plato, the teen star of the show Different Strokes, died of an intentional drug overdose. Ten years later to the day, I'm sorry, 11 years later to the day, her son shot and killed himself. Um, In 1994, some of you may remember Kurt Cobain, lead singer of the band Nirvana, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He was, at the time, one of the most popular musicians in the world. He had a wife and a two-year-old baby, to live for wasn't enough. And I could go on. The movie director Tony Scott, the poet Sylvia Plath, Ernest Hemingway, Margot Hemingway, Dave Garraway, Ed Flanders, the list goes on and on of people who've made it to the big time. But when they got there, couldn't find a reason to go on living. And the list of those who've tried to end their lives is even longer. Just some, to name a few, Halle Berry, named the most beautiful woman in the world. Elton John, the actor Owen Wilson, a 14-year-old Oprah Winfrey, the basketball player Jason Williams, comedian Drew Carey, Ken Griffey Jr., um, recently Michael Jackson's daughter Paris, and many, many more. People don't kill themselves because their girlfriends leave or because they lose their jobs or they get in trouble with the law. They kill themselves or they try to because they have no hope. They don't kill themselves because they got drunk again, but because they've given up hope of ever getting sober. In our society, guns kill way too many people, but hopelessness kills even more. Hopelessness is deadly. But hopelessness doesn't always drive people to kill themselves. Many people hold down jobs, they drive their kids to school, they go to the movies, they plan vacations, they carry on life as usual. But all the while, Hopelessness stalks them like a wild animal. They can feel its presence, especially when they're tired, especially when they're still. And so they try never to be still. They go, go, go. They shop, they buy things they don't need, go to places they don't care about, take pictures they'll never look at, get addicted to painkillers and booze and porn, all because they can't be still. They sense that if they stop, hopelessness is going to pounce. So they keep moving. They stay on the go. 
When they remember 1 Thessalonians 5.17, they think it reads text without ceasing. And they do their best to comply. When they're in the house, the TV sets on. When they're out around town, they have the earbuds in. God says to us, according to the psalm, be still and know that I'm God. But they're afraid that if they ever should be still, they'll know that they are hopeless. Distraction is one of the chief symptoms of hopelessness. And we've made it into an art form. Or perhaps a science. If you don't have hope, you need a shot of distraction the way a type 1 diabetic needs a shot of insulin. The more dependent a person is on distraction, the more serious his or her hope deficiency. If you can't make it through a day without constant distractions, your soul is in need of a cure. You need hope. Today we begin Bold Faith 3. This year's theme is Living Hope. It fits well with our latest sermon series, Kingdom Come. Hope is the air that kingdom dwellers breathe. They live in hope, to quote the psalmist. They look forward, they live forward, they work forward, supported by the promises of God. Hope's also a relevant topic right now here in Branch County. There have been a rash of suicides in our area during the past six months. So many of the people we know and love are experiencing profound hopelessness. A hopelessness that leads first to distraction and then to despair. Maybe you're even one of those folks. Hopelessness is a disease of the soul. Distractions treat its symptoms pretty effectively at first. But it requires higher and higher doses to keep it in check. Hopelessness can become distracted resistant like an infection can become antibiotic resistant. Those rich and famous people I mentioned at the outset discovered that. They could still afford distractions, but distractions weren't working anymore. They were in stage four hopelessness. And apart from a miracle, it was going to destroy them. Thank God for miracles. He can give hope to people who've lost their jobs, who've lost their reputations, who've lost their health. He can fill dying people with hope. I've seen them. He's the God of hope. And we need to know him. St. Peter knew all about hope. He also knew about despair. He's a knowledgeable instructor in this subject. Let's look at what he says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter opens the body of this letter by calling for praise to God. And he uses, I'd never realized this before until I was studying at this time. He uses exactly the same language, word for word, that St. Paul uses in Ephesians and in 2 Corinthians. And that suggests that this had become a favorite way for the early church to talk. The genesis of the early liturgy of the church. But Peter isn't just tossing out some catch, uh, some catchphrase. You know, praise the Lord, oh, PTL. He tells us why the Lord is worthy of praise. God's easy to praise because he is so merciful. He has great or abundant mercy. God is quite literally the original bleeding heart. He doesn't treat people as their sins deserve. He's not an exasperated parent who says, if you do that one more time, young man, you're going to get it good. His actions towards us, even his judgments, flow out of his mercy. The same word that is here translated as great in the NIV or abundant in the King James is used elsewhere of God's love and of his patience. His love is great. His patience is great. His mercy is great. His mercies are new every morning. He doesn't run out of mercy at the end of the week or at the end of the month or at the end of a lifetime. You'll never use it up. There's a fresh supply daily. In his mercy, literally according to his mercy, his great mercy, he's given us new birth. I rather prefer the King James here, which says he has begotten us rather than given us new birth. Birth suggests the delivery of a baby when it's reached full term. But begotten literally refers to the male parent's role in conception, which leads to gestation and then to delivery. Our time before the resurrection is a gestation period. We are being developed. It's a critical time in our development. We're being developed, growing into our true selves by God's grace. We won't reach full term until the time of our delivery, or to use more biblical language, until the time of our deliverance. The essential thing, though, about what he's done in begetting us again is that he's imparted to us a kind of life that we didn't previously possess. That is important for us to understand. God's children are not merely people who subscribe to certain doctrinal views or practice the particular form of religion known as Christianity. They are people who possess a different kind of life. It's a life suited for heaven. Biological life, the kind we received when we were begotten by our earthly dads and moms, isn't suited for heaven. It can't survive there. Which is why the apostle told the Corinthians that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Biological life is too weak for heaven. Occasionally I'll hear someone say that a God who doesn't allow everyone into heaven is cruel and unmerciful and he's not worth our devotion. Well, they just don't know what they're talking about. 
It's never been a matter of allowing people into heaven. Without the kind of life that Peter's talking about here, a person can't survive in heaven. Would you be doing a favor? Would it be a mercy to take your goldfish out of its bowl and set it on the couch beside you while you watch reruns of Flipper? That would be a merciless way to act. The fish doesn't have the kind of life that's necessary to live outside the aquarium. Couldn't survive. And so with a person who's not been begotten again, this is how critical it is. A person who lacks the kind of life about which St. Peter's talking. For God to take such a person into heaven would be tantamount to taking the fish into the living room. Heaven would be hell. A gasping, dying horror for anyone who lacks this kind of life. Adam forfeited that kind of life. When he rebelled against God's commandment, God warned him about what would happen. In the day you eat of it, that is, on the day you decide to go your own way, you shall surely die, and he surely did. But God has reintroduced that life into humanity through the new birth or regeneration or new conception that Peter's talking about here. God is undoing the damage of the rebellion. He's repairing the devastation of the fall. And since the damage started in a man, that's where God began the restoration. St. Paul understood that and wrote that since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. The life that is imparted by regeneration, this new birth, if you want to put it that way, that Peter's talking about, comes equipped with hope. Hope is standard in this life. He's given us new birth into a living hope. This life is a life of hope. Or you could say it's a hope that pulsates with life. And that tells us something important to remember. When a person who has experienced this new birth, who's received this new life, so if you have received this new life through faith in Jesus Christ, when you start losing hope, it's an indication that you are operating not out of this new life, but out of the old life. The old life, the biological life we inherited from Adam, is prone to despair. The new life the spiritual life we receive from Christ is inherently hopeful. So if you find yourself losing hope, it probably means that you're functioning out of the old life. I've been there. I bet you have been too. But that's something we can change. We can learn to operate out of this new life. We must learn to operate out of this new life. But what is hope? Hope is the confident expectation of a preferred future. That differentiates it from a wish. We often use the words interchangeably. Boy, I hope it doesn't rain. That's just a wish. That's not a hope. A wish is merely a desire, sometimes an overpowering desire for a preferred future. But hope is based on the promise of a trustworthy person. It has a foundation. It's built on rock. Whereas wishes are often built on sand. Many people have wishes and sometimes desperate wishes who have absolutely no hope. 
A wish proceeds from us, but a hope comes to us through the word or promise spoken by a trustworthy person. When God is the one speaking, hope is kindled in our spirits. And that's why it is so helpful to the life of hope to listen to God speak through the scriptures. Paul says everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. If you ignore the scriptures, you are making yourself susceptible to hopelessness. How does hope differ from faith? I think sometimes we get this confused. Faith is a transaction with heaven, a trust transaction between you and God. We actually choose to believe. We believe in him. Hope is the receipt of that transaction that's sent back to you. Faith is like what happens when your computer uploads to a website. Hope is like the cookies the website downloads into your computer. Hope is deposited in you, for lack of a better way of putting it, when you connect to God by faith. That's why the apostle writes, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust forms the connection along which hope is transmitted to the soul. People can have hope no matter what their circumstances. Whatever your circumstances are this morning, you can have hope as long as you're trusting God. You can be stabilized by hope. Even when the stock market crashes, even when the job application is rejected, even when the doctor says, I'm sorry, but there's nothing more we can do. Hope is not dependent upon circumstances, but on God's assurances. We are regenerated into a living hope. And, that's verse 3, and verse 4, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. God's children are heirs who have an inheritance. Inheritance is a loaded word in Scripture, loaded with riches. God promised the Israelites an inheritance. They could count it as their own, even as they wandered as aliens in a foreign land. They knew it was theirs. We too have an inheritance we can count on. That inheritance is described most often in Scripture in terms of a kingdom. We inherit a kingdom. After the last couple of months, that shouldn't come as a surprise. The author of Hebrews speaks of it as inheriting salvation. The Revelation describes it as inheriting the new creation. That inheritance, though, is not just a place like the land of Canaan or even the territory of heaven. It's not just a crown or a reward. It's also a people. It's very important to understand. St. Paul prays that the eyes of the believer's heart may be enlightened to know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. God's greatest riches are not invested in a place 
but in a people. That means when one of God's children is estranged from another of God's children, he is in some way estranged from his inheritance. Would you walk away from a million dollars left to you in your father's will? You walk away from something far greater than that when you turn your back on one of God's children. Now, you know where the difference between hope and hopelessness lies? It lies in an empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus is the difference between hope and hopelessness. It's through the resurrection that we were regenerated, begotten again into living hope. This life is introduced to us through the resurrection. In Scripture, the believer's hope is never merely that he will go on living somehow after he dies. Some unembodied spirit floating around in heaven. No, his hope is resurrection. We will have a body, not more real than this one, just more. A supersonic jet is not more real than a bicycle, but it is more. The resurrection body will be more. It will be imperishable. It will never wear out. It will be suited to the kingdom of heaven, perfectly in tune with our spirits, always obedient to our wills in ways that our bodies are not now. Our resurrection hope is not merely that we will somehow go on living in some diaphanous, hazy, spiritual realm. Something much better awaits us. The rapture of the saved souls, said St. Augustine, will flow over into the resurrected body. The whole man, said C.S. Lewis, the whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. We can't imagine the torrent of sensation that awaits us of pleasure, of strength, of exaltation in our resurrected bodies. We tend to think that after death, people are wraith-like, ghostly, unsubstantial. We'll find it to be exactly the opposite. When in the age to come, we look back on our time here, we'll feel that before the resurrection, we were barely alive We were like wraiths, hardly living, hardly feeling compared to what we will have become. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee that those united to Jesus by faith will also be resurrected. See, the good news is that the resurrection for which God's people waited long ages to see has begun. It began with Jesus. He was the first, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, St. Paul says. Jesus is the beginning of the new age. His resurrection is the inauguration of the kingdom of God, and he is himself the surety of our salvation. This is our hope, founded on the word and act of God in Jesus Christ. We will be free. We'll be free of the haze of sin that constantly confuses us of the weight that saps our strength, that filches our peace, will be full of joy that is, as Peter says in verse 8, unspeakable and full of glory. We'll be strong, strong enough to bear a weight of glory that we could not now bear, that would crush us. But something remains to be said. The life of hope is not a life of ease. 
If you think because we have hope, everything's going to be smooth sailing from now on, you're mistaken. We will suffer grief. The word can mean sorrow, distress, as verse 6 tells us, and all kinds of trials. Hope becomes even more critical in these times, just as an anchor becomes more critical in turbulent waters. I've sat above a waterfall in a boat fishing, and I wanted to make sure that my anchor held. It's in those turbulent times that hope is an anchor for the soul. As painful as they are, those trials serve a purpose. God allows them. They test and purify our precious, priceless faith to prepare us for the day when Jesus Christ will be revealed to praise and glory and honor. And as our faith stands the test of such trials, maybe the one you're in right now, as your faith stands the test of that trial, your hope will grow more and more secure. When someone trusts God through such a trial, it fills him with hope. Remember, hope's the receipt that you receive from that faith transaction. It fills him with hope, which prepares him to trust God in the next trial, which fills him with more hope, which prepares him to trust God even more. You get the picture. When that person carried upward in a cycle of hope comes at last to his death, his hope remains secure. His soul will cry out with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth after my skin has been destroyed. Yet in my flesh I will see God, I'll see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Those are words of hope that came as a man trusted God in trial. And ours is a life of hope. Let's live it boldly. Let's pray. God, meet us now in this table. And where hope has flagged, Lord, come to us. Call us again to trust in you. And restore us after we suffered a little while. In the name of your good son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand.